Have you ever wondered what sets apart companies at scale right from startup from those who don't? Well, the Genius at Scale podcast is here to answer that question. I interview CEOs from scaling companies and explore the counterintuitive practices that help them grow in ways that other companies don't. We'll also explore the biggest mistakes that almost wrecked them. Hi, I'm John Hitler. I'm a nine-time company founder and CEO. Now I coach CEOs in scaling companies. We'll be joined by these visionary leaders who've defied convention, challenged the status quo, and redefined the very essence of scaling. This is Genius at Scale. Hello and welcome again to Genius at Scale. Today's guest is David Hassel, the founder and CEO of 15.5. David, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. John, great to be with you and uh, great to be with your audience. Uh, I am the founder and CEO of 15.5, have been for about 12 years. And prior to that, um, I've, I've been an entrepreneur since, uh, since I graduated college in 1998. Uh, started a number of different companies, including an ad tech company in the late 90s in New York City, to an adventure travel company for kiteboarders in Northeast Brazil and uh, from about 2005 to 2010. Uh, I've ran a strategy consulting uh, practice where I help CEOs and their executive teams figure out their why and their values and, you know, more of what you might call the soft aspects of the business, but I've, I've come to appreciate as, as some of the most critical, as well as how do you then organize uh, what you're focused on in various horizons of time and align the entire company around those things. And that work did uh, inform uh, a lot of the, um, the work I've now done now with 15.5. And 15.5 is a performance management platform uh, for strategic HR leaders that helps them measurably improve their engagement and performance and retention, which it also happens their CEOs and CFOs also really appreciate. Oh, that's great. So it's, it's both, it does hit metrics. So you take care of the people that want metrics, but it's, it's more hitting, it's starting from the soft side. That's right. Well, it's it, it is it is a bit of both, yeah. So we're we're using a lot of uh, a lot of science and, uh, and and AI now to to figure out what actually repeatedly moves the needle in organizations to increase those things. Um, but it's infused with a lot of the human centered social science research about you know just what what good management is and, and the kind of management and leadership that's needed in in this this day and age with you know a lot of dif different generations in the workplace and and folks with different levels of motivation and things like that yeah so i got two questions i want to start off that hit me just from your intro um first is were you i'm i'm always fascinated um with how do entrepreneurs get started i mean it's it's not like you suddenly go to entrepreneur school and then say, I've decided I want to be an entrepreneur. Were you entrepreneurial as a kid or were you the one that went and worked at Baskin Robbins or, or McDonald's and had to come a more traditional first job? A little bit of both, I'd say. So um, when I when I was younger, I did get a paper route. So back when people actually had newspapers, right? In the, uh, that's right. In the, in the Stone Age, when dinosaurs roamed the yeah. earth. Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly right. And uh, you know, they would drop off this giant stack of newspapers at our, our front door every every morning, and I'd roll them up. And the, you know, they'd have different stacks of the ads. You'd have to stuff the ads in there, roll them up, put them up. And most days, I would be out before dawn on my bike driving down the street, except, you know, when it rained, my dad would uh, hop in the in the station wagon, I'd leave the back door open, and I'd sit in the back, tossing them out the back <laughs> onto different people's porches in the plastic bags. So, so I did so that. 
let me let me just check for uh, accuracy. I've only yes. I found a hundred percent of kids with a paper paper out only had one in horrible weather states, like four <laughs> four season states where you have six inches of snow and you still got to do it, and yes, and, uh, freezing cold. It's uh, Nobody, that was, nobody that was New Jersey. Movies, like they're they're riding down a sunny street in California, tossing papers. <laughs> right. you know, I never heard of a paper paper boy nope. like that. Paper no, like you that. nailed it. You nailed it. So we had we had all of it. Um, yeah. So I did that. And 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 actually, my first it was very funny. I had I had a best friend growing up in in grammar school, Mark Adams, and uh, I, I I distinctly remember in second grade we were passing notes back and forth to each other with like A plus H. It was Adams and Hassel Enterprises. So we 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 thought we were going to build something together. It took us until eighth grade to actually do that. Uh, when we would uh, melt down chocolate in my basement and and make uh, chocolate pops that we'd then go to school and sell to the other kids <laughs> so you were like chocolate pimps i don't know if that's a professional yes. term but yeah you were. right yes <laughs> and then i got into selling memory to kids you know in, in college i was uh i was um uh i was tasked with getting all the kids on on online when you know i went to went to college in 1994 just as the internet was happening and, you know, people would show up to school with these PCs, these big box PCs. They didn't even have a network card in them. And so I was one of these computer consultants who go, you know, dorm, you know, dorm room to dorm room, installing the network card, the software, getting them onto the, the campus network. And then inevitably, uh, folks would not have enough memory. And so I would, uh, you know, on the side, I'd buy wholesale memory and then sell it retail to all the college students. So that was my, my uh, way to make some college money. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good gig. That's yeah, I was like, hey, gig. I already got your computer open. You know, you, you need a little more memory. So here, here we go. Right. Oh, that's great. That's great. So that was the first question. The second question is, I'm curious what's um, universal or maybe um, present in every company you did? Because obviously, uh, adventure kite surfing is very different than 15.5, is very different than why or purpose consulting. What was, yes. what was um, common amongst all of them? Well, you know, what's interesting is the businesses themselves did not have um, a lot of commonality. Uh, the commonality was me following my inspiration. And for better or worse, uh, you know, it, it definitely led me through, you know, quite a learning journey in my life. Uh, you know, I followed basically what, you know, what I was inspired to go do and, 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 and evolved and grew along the way. So for example, um, back in 99, I actually did, I, you know, I, I did, did work for a company right out of college for about nine or 10 months. Um, and, and while I was there, it was 1990, 1998 into 1999. And I was, I was watching this whole crazy com boom. And, you know, I was reading this article about this 22 year old kid who'd ra raised $20 million for my Christmas list.com. And I was like, this is crazy. Like, what am I doing here? I, I should be out there building something. And so I, you know, I started studying the, the advertising industry. I was just very curious and I had, you know, kind of this inspiration for a new type of ad format, which, which then propelled me into, Hey, maybe I'm going to go and, and build a company. At that time, I had no sense of the importance of culture and value. I didn't even know what company culture was. I didn't even know what my own values were, quite frankly. Um, I just went in because I wanted to go build something cool, chart my own path and maybe make a lot of money. Um, I only did the second one of those to chart my own path. Unfortunately, we didn't build anything very cool or make a lot of money, but, uh, but I learned a lot. 
<laughs> including the importance of, of culture and values. And, and, and then with the kite surfing bit, uh, I, I was living in, uh, in New York City with a couple of Brazilians. And there was this mysterious guy who'd show up every summer. He was like six foot four, tan Brazilian guy who'd work at the boathouse restaurant in New York City to make enough money to go back to spend the rest of the, the year on the beach in Brazil um, kiteboarding. And so I was like, well, what's this kiteboarding? You know, actually, for, for two years, I thought he meant windsurfing. I thought it was a language thing. So I didn't even ask him. Um, and then one day he showed up with kite, kite surfing gear. And I said, well, that's not windsurfing stuff. And he said, you know, I've been telling you it's kite surfing. So, you know, shame on me. I could have I learned about this two years prior. But uh, within a month, he, we're on the beach in Long Island. He's teaching me to kite surf. And I thought this, this sport was absolutely going to take off. I fell in love with it. And I said, hey, let's go, let's go down to Brazil and start this adventure travel business. Um, so it really was just, uh, you know, me being inspired by something new and possible and then, and then pursuing that and learning new things in the process. That's, that's great. And, and my suspicion is 10 years from now, you may be, may be inspired to do something else and, and you'll chase that too. Absolutely. That's yeah. right. No, that's great. That's a great, it's, and that's, I don't know if that's, um, innate or if that's learned, but, uh, yeah, every entrepreneur seems to have that curiosity, um, gene, if you will. You know, you know, there's also, I think, a mindset. You know, I, I think a lot of people don't think um, that you can go out and just create something new. I remember I, I, my mom had clipped out this uh, this little thing from the New York Times at one point, and it was on my mirror in my bedroom. And it said, uh, even, even a great idea is only an idea until you make it real. And so there was this, it kind of sparked me uh, at an early age to be like, oh, wow, like you can actually take ideas and make them real. Um, so there was, there was that. And I remember hearing a, a Steve Jobs interview too, where he, where he, he said, you know, most people walk around like just thinking the world is the way that it is and they don't realize you can actually make it up and that it's all been made up by other people. Um, so I think, you know, having that, that mindset and then of course the, the, um, you know, the, the wherewithal to say, I'm going to go out and do something that's uncertain and figure out how to do it. I mean, that, that initial leap is very scary. It, it even was for me at 23 years old, um, and uh, I, I you know, gratefully had a guy called my uncle Kenny, who was my godfather, and uh, went to dinner with him. And he said, "Look, you know, you're 23. You have two times in your life when it's going to be. E it's never going to be easy." Now he, he he was a publisher, he, an entrepreneur. He said, "It's never going to be easy, but there's only two types times in your life when it's going to be easier, and it's now when you have no obligations, and it's after your kids go off to college." <laughs> and nice. so I sat there and was like. Well, boy, I better jump because you yeah. know, otherwise it could Knows be 30 years. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> That's funny. Well, your mom and my mom must have come from different neighborhoods because my mom's saying was <laughs> um, I would go, uh, I would refuse to work at McDonald's or Baskin Robbins. And I would do, do something like go to, um, we had federal hardware. We, there was no, it was called federal hardware. It was a little local hardware store, about a half mile uh -huh. from our house. I'd go buy stencils and a can of black paint. And I'd go door to door on a Saturday morning. And my rule with myself was I can't quit until I run out of that can of paint. And I would paint the curb numbers for anybody that would give me a dollar. Well, I can make about $40 net, uh, gross. And then I had to pay for the paint and the stencils. I'd make about 35 bucks in about four hours on a Saturday morning when the minimum wage at that time was $1.90. Oh, my, my gosh, mom would always say the same thing. You know, a lot of guys smarter than you have failed at that. Because she, oh, no. she wanted <laughs> yes. me to learn the value of hard work. And I'm thinking, if I can make 35 bucks in four hours, or I can make $16 at McDonald's working eight hours on a Saturday? 
why would I? Why would I do that? It why would never you do made that? any sense to me. But uh, it was that. Yes. Maybe it was that reaction. Like, uh, yeah, I'll show you. Uh, so that's funny. That's funny. So how do you? I'm curious. At, so fifteen five is your is your is your gig now? It how is. do you measure scale in in a company like that? Is it is it number of users or subscription or how do you, how do you yeah. um, track scale? Ultimately, you know, the market values software companies based on their uh, annual recurring revenue. So sure. that's that's the ultimate measure. And so you can have, you know, uh, the same amount of annual recurring revenue with 10 customers or 10,000 customers, depending on how big those customers are on the subscription. Uh, yeah. We, um, you know, being a company that uh, has both a purpose and a profit motive, uh, look not just at the at the profitability of the company and the what they call the unit economics, which are the the various things about how much does it cost to acquire a customer, or what's their lifetime value, all those kinds of things. We want to look at all those, of course, but we also look at you know how many how many people are using the platform, how many lives are we impacting, how many managers are we helping to improve as managers to improve their lives and also the, the lives of their people. So we look at the, the, you know, kind of the scale in terms of how many, how many people are actually actively using the platform and benefiting from it on a weekly basis. So I'm curious, are there, are there um, companies or customers you have where some people just say, I'm not going to do this. And, and the, and the system is less effective or, or do you get full participation from teams? Uh, it varies. It varies by 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 company. Originally, and it's it's worth understanding a little context about the product. So originally, the product was, and the, the name fifteen five comes from an old business practice that the founder of Patagonia, Ivan Chouinard, popularized uh, in the eighties. It was written in you know Inc. Magazine in nineteen eighty eight, uh, even before we had computers and whatnot and email. And um, he would have every employee in his company spend fifteen minutes a week writing a report that takes their manager no more than five minutes to read. So that was the simple, uh, what we now call a weekly check-in. That was the initial product of fifteen five, and it was geared towards CEOs and managers, managers so they could have this cadence of communication with their direct reports. CEOs, when it all cascades, to be able to have visibility into what's happening throughout the whole organization because important issues and challenges could be uh, bubbled up or 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 you know kind of at mentioned and looped. In. In, and that every employee had, you know, felt like they had a voice and could be connected to the leaders in the organization. So that was the original value prop. We've evolved over the years to now uh, have a full-fledged pr platform that's that we sell to HR leaders. And our promise to HR leaders is that we can help you measure and improve your employee engagement, performance, and retention. And one big way we do that is through your managers. So the the, the uh, many of our competitors uh, have the things like performance reviews and engagement surveys and, uh, you know, a way to integrate with an HRS to understand retention. And they just do that. What's unique about 15.5 is that we've built that on top of that powerful manager platform. So what we do is we help HR leaders run their performance review cycles, run their engagement surveys, integrate with their HRS to understand where the retention is, get the information, right? And then uh, we also surface that information directly to individual managers and say, here's where you stand. Um, you're really high in psychological safety, but your team's really low in rest. Um, and, and then those manager tools then become relevant for them to use if they choose to, to improve those. Ultimately, it's up to them to improve their own metrics as a manager and they can use our tools or not. Um, and then we also provide education and coaching on a subscription basis for those managers as well to help move the needle. So I would say, you know, uh, 
that we have some customers who only have 40 or 50% adoption with that particular check-in product on a weekly basis. We have other companies that have 90 to 100% adoption, but most of those companies have 100% adoption on the things like performance reviews and engagement surveys, which is where we do the measurement at the HR level. Oh, I got it. That's, uh, it's, it's powerful. It's, uh, yeah, it builds, that helps to scale a company. That's great. Yes, exactly. So I'm um, curious, I'm always fascinated with the risk profile of entrepreneurial CEOs because the, the popular media paints it like you have to be Elon Musk, 11 on a scale of one to 10, <laughs> right. wash muckler, lots of debt, um, bold, audacious promises. It seems to be on a scale, but I'm curious where, if, if it's a scale of one to 10, 10 being Elon Musk and one being cash between the mattresses, do, do you have a <laughs> sense for your own risk tolerance or risk appetite as a CEO, as an entrepreneurial CEO? I've talked to a number of other CEOs and folks. I've been, I've been in different organizations like the Entrepreneurs Organization, EO and YPO and these things. And one of the guys on, on, I was the president of the San Francisco chapter of EO about 10 years ago. And one of the guys on my board said, I think entrepreneurs just have this like, you know, risk gene is like diminished or it's just not there. It's like, I don't necessarily ex feel like I'm taking big risks pursuing this. I, because, you know, because I, I also feel like it's, it's, um, it is the path to expressing myself as, you know, as, as a creative person to create something in the world. It's the only way. Right. Um, and if it doesn't work out, then there are other things that I, I can go and do. Now, that said, as you get older and you have a family and you have bigger obligations, it, it definitely creates a little more anxiety of like, oh gosh, if this all goes away, it takes some time to restart and, and reclaim, you know, kind of personal income. That's on a you know personal side. There's no way to create something new without taking some risk. And the, and the reality is most, uh, you know, most startups and people trying to create some new thing or disrupt a market, most of them do actually fail. Um, you know, I think it's, it's, it's much more of a, uh, I wouldn't say a sure thing, but I think it's easier to be on the investor side of things where you can use portfolio theory to your advantage and take some capital and spread it across 10, 50 right. or a hundred different companies. And as long as you have some, you know, some good, good way to kind of, uh, you know, interpret where the world's going and a good sense of, of team, you can probably do decently well, uh, doing that. Uh, whereas, you know, as, as an entrepreneur, all your eggs are in this one stock in this one basket. Um, yeah. so. Yeah. I often ask entrepreneurs if, uh, if I give you a half million dollar position at Google with Google benefits and perks, or you could keep your company, which would you take? Four out of five and say, oh, I like it right where I'm at. I wouldn't want to go hundred percent. I wouldn't want, and I don't know whether that's an autonomy or an independence thing, or if it's. I'll bet on myself, um, but that that idea of chasing something that's yours and your idea, um, it's hard to it's hard to let that go. Well, I'll I'll, I'll give you the other side of that that equation. There was a moment the night before, or about a month before we raised our Series A. Now it was a long time, but between when we launched our product in 2012, we raised a little bit of capital, friends and family, a little angel round in 2013. And then uh, in 2014, we did a larger, um, you know, kind of seed extension. All told, it was $3.8 million over, you know, three or four years. And then we raised an $8.2 million Series A four years later in, in September of, of 2018. Or, or actually, it was June, I think, June or July, we signed the term sheet. And um, prior to that, there was a, a, a large 
private equity firm, uh, software-based private equity firm that came to us and said, hey, you know, we're thinking about rolling up a couple of these companies. We're interested potentially in 15.5. And they looked at us and they eventually said, no, I think we're going to go with this other one because they cater more up market. And, um, you know, they came back to me the night before I was to sign the term sheet for the Series A and said, you know, we're having second thoughts. We think actually you might be the right fit. And it was a, you know, I owned a lot of the company at that time. Uh, and it was quite a large dollar value. And right, they're going to write a big check. Yeah. It, they were going to, they were potentially going to write a big check and it would have been for me, um, you know, like a home, enough of a home run to say, you know, I grew up in a middle-class family, first kid to go to college, you know, it, it would have been like, I would have been post money, let's say, uh, yeah. you know, I wouldn't have had to work again and could work, you know, if I wanted to. And, and so I was sitting with, okay, you know, I, we're on the cusp of, you know, we've got some early traction and we're going to get this financing. And I think we can actually go have this big impact and play this out, or I can take the money and be done. And, um, and I, and I said, you know what, I'm going to sign that term sheet and we're going to go for it. Thank you for your offer. I'm going to take, take the term sheet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, That's, that's exactly the, that's the four and five that I noticed with entrepreneurs. I go, you know what, I want to, I want to chase this. I want to see it to, to, even if I lose. See it to fruition. Yeah. And, and that was yeah. it. I was like, you know, I, I'm never going to know if we were able to have the impact that we set out right. to you, have. And we're only just, we've only just created that possibility. Would you have kicked yourself for your, the rest of your life? Had you taken the check and then watched them turn it into some corporate BS? Probably. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure I would have gone and done something else too. But You would have gone, yeah, you would have taken money and done something else. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's great. That's great. I've written several books and the book, work I'm working on are... Is is uh, it's the working title is unteachable. I'm curious about hmm. what I call unteachable talents that are most useful useful for scaling. You and I have discussed this a little bit. Um, curious your take on because you're around the talents in your organization that it's a yes. handful of people that tend to have them. What are the talents that you notice that are unteachable and super useful for scaling a, a company like yours? Hmm. Uh, I, I have a sense for what you mean, and and, and it may not be. Uh, you know, uh, you know, I don't don't have the context. I haven't haven't. And this is the book you're writing now. Or you have written. It's, I'm, I'm interviewing you're in the people. Process. So I ask oh, people. Oh, great. For instance, yeah. the one that the one that I immediately tossed in, and nobody has countered is charisma. Yeah. Super hard to teach. Yeah. And if you do teach it, my theory is that you get worse because you look like somebody that's trying to do charisma that has not uh, yes. like a bad dancer who look, who's had two dance lessons. They look like somebody that took two dance lessons and they're, and they yes. look terrible. Um, but sure. if you have charisma, you can recruit, you can fundraise, yeah. you can attract talent, you can sell and super helpful regardless of who has it in the organization. Oftentimes it's the CEO, but, it's a super helpful scaling talent. Yeah, I'm curious if you have a proposal or a or a candidate for the list. Uh, yeah, that's great. I mean, charisma is a good one. I, I think that um, you know, I think about this through the lens of unique ability or zone of genius, and 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 you know, these things that we tend to have, kind of these, they're almost like ingrained at the personality level, um, and and for whatever reason, they're things where we have like a, a you know a strength, a strength or a, a skill that. And we probably have that because we were drawn into being that way early in our life and, and, and kept 
doing that and being reinforced. And then when you combine that with the things that you, you're passionate and you love, that adds this kind of like emotional, psychological and physical energy to it. And that combination of like, I'm using this skill, but I'm also super energized is very hard to replicate unless that is also innate to you. So I, so I, I find that those things are, are, are somewhat, you know, unteachable to, to your point. And, yeah. and, and charisma is yeah. a good one. I think, um, uh, you know, when I think about an entrepreneur who is, uh, just doggedly determined and will not give up. I'm, I'm one of those sometimes to a fault. I will just keep going and going and going and, and I, I won't take no for an answer. I'm going to make it happen. Uh, so that, that, you know, that determination I think is, is something that isn't always teachable. Um, so that, I think that that's, that's probably one that I would say. No, it's great. It's great. I, I, yeah, you're right. Cause you're right. If you work at Google and you say, you know, when six thirty and it's the night before it's Halloween and I've got a seven year old at home, I, I'm not, I'm not finishing this project. And if you're a entrepreneur, you say, okay, I'll, I'll work on it on the way home, take my kid out. And then when they go back to sleep, then I'm going to sit. It's a different, it's a different mindset. It's a different, uh, yeah. Um, and you're right. That is difficult to teach because reason would say you've worked long enough today. Exactly. Or in my case, I'm now every decade for some reason, I now need to go to bed an hour earlier. So I'd be like, I'm taking the kid out, going straight to sleep and I'm up at four and then I'll get it done. <laughs> <laughs> you do it your way. I'll do it my way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's, funny. That's funny. I love that. I love that. Um, it's uh, at the time of this recording, it's annual planning season. And we're moving yes. into, oh, yeah, people go off site and whatnot. Curious if you have a um, an entrepreneurial way to do or a specific way that you do annual planning. When I talk to entrepreneurs, they've tried 100 different ways. And mm -hmm. the only way that I find doesn't work is what I call spreadsheet annual planning. Oh, last year we were at X. This year we want to go X plus 15% and everybody goes to yes. sleep and nobody hits the metric the next year. Cause they're, they're just not engaged. But I'm curious if you have a methodology or a, a trick that you do for annual planning that works well, um, given the space you're in, cause you're working with these sort of things with teams right. and, and engagement. Yeah. And I don't do much of that anymore with, with other companies and we don't provide, you know, planning services. I would say the best trick, honestly, that I've, that, that I have, uh, you know, in, in the past two years is I hired a great COO and a great CFO and they lead the annual, annual planning process now, uh, which is much better than, than when I did it. However, I can, I can give you kind of some insights into how we, we think about that as an organization. So we, 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 we do we start early. I think it's important to start early because for years we would roll into January and we're not, we haven't wrapped it up yet. So now you're going, Oh, now we have to have it this year. Exactly. Yeah. And we have to, you know, we want to get the budget approved by the board and all of that happening, you know, by, uh, you know, end of November, mid December latest, and then we can roll it out to the whole company. So we start early in September. Um, you know, we do look at the, the spreadsheet and the, the underlying metrics to understand the realm of, uh, what are the mechanics of the business and what are the trade-offs that we could make? And, and if we make those trade, like it, we don't start and we don't start with the spreadsheet, but the spreadsheet becomes, um, you know, a little bit of a litmus test or a, a way to validate some of the things we want to go accomplish. So we might say, okay, this year, you know, we'd like to grow this fast. Okay, well, let's see, 
you know, what is our, what does our sales team think they can do based on the sense of momentum they have in the market? And then, you know, can we ground that with, you know, what does pipeline look like? What does it cost to, to, you know, to acquire a certain lead? What are the current close rates? Oh, you know, so, so if we want to grow that fast um, and we know the close rates are what they are, do we think we can increase the close rate? Do we think we can increase the, you know, the, the annual contract value? Like where, what are the what are the changes we might need to make, and then um, so that we can get clear on the, the assumptions that would need to be true for those things to actually happen, and then we say, okay, oh yeah, we're gonna that would require us to double our close rate. That's a, maybe a bit fa- fantasy. Oh, but this might require us to incre- increase our close rate by fifteen percent. Well, that's it might be a stretch, but I think we can do that. So it, you know, again, there's there's a little bit of art and a little bit of science, but it's also got to be grounded in some sense of practical reality, and ultimately. Uh, what I have found is the team, uh, the executive team needs to be 100% bought in, and it needs to be something that the rest of the organization can believe, even if it seems like this is going to be hard or a stretch. So do you do it with your executive team primarily and then roll it out to the whole team, or do you do you have, do it all hands for the actual, what I'll call the offsite, whatever the whatever the day or two that everybody's together? Do you do it all it's hands a, or just a, executive team? It's a little bit of an iterative process. So it'll start with the executive team. Uh, there are conversations that that happen. You know, we're, we're gathering, you know, like where does each executive, you know, we, we start as an executive team and say, what's our what's our vision and what would we like to accomplish? Then each of those individual leaders needs to go do their work, which may include getting input from their uh, their respective teams about what's possible. And then, of course, you know, once you get those things, you know, to avoid being, um, uh, you know, because because now at a company of, you know, 230 people that we are, uh, you know, we, we could easily fall into the trap of being very, very siloed. And when the reality is we need one of our values is win as one team, we need to be operating as one team. And, and, and there are a lot of cross-functional dependencies. So, right. uh, you know, if sales says they're going to put up a number, well, they have a big dependency on marketing. Uh, but they may also have a dependency on the product organization doing a certain number of big product releases each year sure. and fixing some some challenges and all those kinds of things. So so then there is a layer of going out and making sure that, uh, you know, all of the cross-functional dependencies are also being factored in by each team when they say, hey, we're going to do this Herculean thing. And oh, by the way, we also have to support these other departments. Oh, well, maybe we need to kind of dial down our goals to create space for that. And so, you know, there's a bit of a balancing and an iterative process to get through, you know, what's the company-wide vision and what, you know, each leader goes back to their departments to understand, um, you know, is there buying and what are the challenges and what are the risks and what can they actually commit to? And then we flesh out all the cross-functional dependencies and then we, you know, we bake the plan, we get the board approval and then we roll it out to the company. Wow. Okay. So that's your back of the envelope. That's a big envelope. Yeah. That's a huge envelope. envelope. Yeah. It's a process. It's a multi-month process. Yeah. (laughs) No, I love it. I love it. Curious. The the most uh, requested question for our audience is um, I'll, I'll say it the simple way. The, The biggest mistake or um, oversight or fuster cluck that you've you've had that's that might have killed the company, but in the end turned yes. into oh wow that uh, long term that was a huge turning point for us because because we learned from it, but it almost killed yes. us. Every yes. entrepreneur I find has at least one of those. Uh, could you yes. share one? I will. And, and, and it's interesting that it was, it was something that was not immediately obvious. Um, 
And we, we're in a somewhat competitive space where uh, 15.5 is one of now three companies that are still independent, that have any kind of reasonable scale, uh, when there were probably, you know, a dozen or more companies that, that you know, over the past decade kind of tried in this space and some, some were acquired and some failed and whatnot. Um, we were one of the earlier ones to market uh, alongside one of the others. And, and then the third one uh, started coming into the market in 2015 or 2016. And by around about 2019, they hit an incredible growth trajectory and started surpassing us in terms of growth rate. And at the time, I couldn't quite understand why. And in hindsight, I understand it very clearly. Uh, you know, we had started at the time, we didn't, uh, HR was still very much seen as a, a cost sensor and, a, and a, an administrative role. And we didn't, I, 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 you know, the, the people that I knew and the, and the people whose problems I wanted to solve for were other CEOs. And I was building a product for CEOs and, and eventually VPs and managers and whatnot. And we were doing that. It, around about 2015, things started to shift. Um, there was a, uh, there was an article in the Harvard Business Review that came out of Deloitte called Reinventing Performance Management. And uh, it, it was about how Deloitte said, gosh, this, this annual performance review isn't working. We need to throw the whole thing out and do something completely different. And they advocated for, as part of their thing, uh, something called weekly check-ins. And we said, oh my God, that's what we do. And so all of a sudden, HR teams, uh, many of them swinging the pendulum too far the other direction, started throwing out their annual performance reviews and buying 15.5. And we said, wow, this is great. So now we're selling to HR. Now we're, we're selling to CE, CEOs and managers and VPs. And this this other newer company had had kind of connected the dots, I think, you know, because they were coming to it fresh and said, oh, there's this emerging market for HR leaders. And they built a brand and marketed and, and sold directly to HR. And, and, and in hindsight, did some incredible account-based marketing back in 2019 that, that really set them on a, a trajectory to, you know, to kind of be the market leader, especially in Silicon Valley. And, and that put a lot of pressure on our business. And ultimately, uh, what, I, what I learned from it is that you need to be singularly focused on an ideal customer. And building a product and then kind of just selling it to whoever wants it, but not being laser focused on one profile spreads both your marketing too thin and, 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 and has your product be, you know, not uh, as focused. Now, we have turned things around in a way and, and have, have squarely embraced the HR market and strate specifically strategic HR leaders as our primary buyer. And, and that has helped us uh, create some of the most incredible alignment and momentum in our R&D organization than we've, than we've had just in the past 18 months than we've had in the first 12 years. Um, and, and so that, uh, that, that was a big learning. Um, I'm not even sure in hindsight if I would have noticed or done anything different because I didn't have the knowledge. But if, right, if so I had the knowledge I know now, yeah. No, exactly. It wasn't. It was a slow. It was a slow burn, right. and uh, it was too late to notice uh, until it was too late to notice. Right. Now, uh, but you know, if I were ever to start a, a company again, I would be continuing to ask: Are we selling to the right person, and are we selling to one person, right. and are we building and selling for one person? And so, you know, that was the big lesson there. Oh, the other great. thing that that uh, should have killed the company but didn't uh, <laughs> was actually at the outset. Uh, I. Um, uh, someone had told me the idea for for fifteen five and told me how Ivan, you know, I read this article about how Ivan Chenard, uh, uh, basically the title in the Inc. magazine was 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 uh, I'm sorry, um, Ivan's out surfing, and so uh, the author. Uh, 
the author started out saying, this is the response I got every time I try to call for the interview. And so when she finally got him in line, said, how is it you're always out surfing when you're running this company? So, well, I didn't start this company to work 52, 50 weeks a year. I started, so, you know, so I could be out in the field, uh, you know, surfing and climbing mountains and, and doing what I love. And, uh, you know, I, I do that half the year and I run the company half the year. And, and, and I, and the way I do it is by doing this 515 thing. And we turned it around and called it 155. And I said, well, gosh, you know, if, if he could, if he, he could build Patagonia working half the year doing that, wouldn't every CEO want this? Right. And so I fell in love with the solution. Uh, but not the problem. And so that's also something I have learned that, you know, as an entrepreneur, you want to be in love with the problem and yeah. be solution agnostic. And so yeah. I was, you know, I took this solution to market. Thank God it actually clicked, but it was actually, the, it was, it was, it was the wrong approach that just happened to work. Yeah. Um, but I don't think it was the right approach to approach, uh, the yeah, right way to approach the market. It's, it's funny how people say, oh, that was lucky. And I say, no, that's not lucky. That's that maybe that's the dog of determinedness. Say, I think you know, there was a the lot of that. Will, there was the some luck. Follow if I put the if I put the work in. Yeah, there, there was also some amazing uh, serendipity that 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 oh, happened for us. Everybody gets them. Yeah, but you get bad luck too. Yes, you, you get, oh, for sure. Yeah, you get you play more than your share of bad luck. It would seem. Uh, I'm sure it's that's the right. same for everybody. But everybody goes, "Oh, that was a bad break." You go, "Yeah, that's life." Yeah, yeah deal yes. with it. So, yeah. uh, last question, and, and uh, it's become up, come up more and more with our listeners. They're curious in this idea of opting out of too much noise, especially with, with what's going on in the world. Where do you get your information from without having to be on seven social media networks? And it's the response to it interesting, but I'm curious, where do you get your primary information from such that you can ignore most of the noise and just get the signals? Yes, that's a good question. Um, I... I remember having a conversation with Tim Ferriss about a decade ago, and he said something where he was doing like some sort of news fast at the time. And, and I was, I was reading everything I could. And, um, and he said, look, if it's important enough, it'll find me. And so that, that kind of always stuck with me. Uh, I'm not to that ex extreme. I'm not obsessively on, uh, kind of news and social media. And so that's one thing there, there is a lot of noise on the, on a moment to moment and daily basis, but the, 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 the more important stories tend to have some persistence to them. So I have a pattern of, of, of less frequently checking in and, and understanding what's happening both in my market and in the world. Uh, and I'm also in certain networks. So I do go on Twitter maybe once or twice a week. And, you know, again, the most important conversations tend to bubble up and I try to follow, you know, people I respect and who have uh, unique and interesting insights. So that's on a one-to-one on -one basis. Uh, I'm involved in a, a group now that is, you know, kind of like an EO or a YPO, but specifically for tech and SaaS companies. And they provide to their network of 100 companies and CEOs, uh, you know, market intelligence reports and things like that. And, and there are conversations that are happening there. Um, I also have a, a WhatsApp group with a, you know, a, a number of very, very interesting entrepreneurs who are sharing, you know, kind of different things that I'm tuned into uh, uh, there. And then I will, I will, um, you know, check a variety of news sites periodically, maybe once or twice a week, um, some financial like Bloomberg, and then, and then I'll actually look at, you know, everything from, you know, kind of center, center right, center left, a little further right, further left, just to kind of get a sense for what's happening in the in in the world from various political lenses, uh, without identifying with any necessarily one of them. I like to see, 
you know, how are, how are the, how is the news being framed, um, by, by, you know, kind of different political leanings. Um, yeah. so I can try to understand, you know, and, and approximate the truth for myself, which is like not it. always very easy. I love it. This is, this is becoming a bigger and bigger focus for people because you can't just yeah. be, otherwise you're distracted all the time. If you got, if you got to, if you're oh, completely. So. David, I'm going to end it there. Um, thank you so much for, uh, appearing on genius at scale. Uh, it's been, uh, been fun having you. Always great to have an entrepreneur that's building things and scaling things. Thank you, John. Appreciate it. Yeah. To our guests, uh, thank you for, for tuning in. We look forward to seeing you on our next episode of Genius at Scale. All the best. Thanks for joining me on another powerful episode of Genius at Scale. If you enjoyed today's episode and want to continue your journey into the world of scaling, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, And while you're there, leave us a five-star review and let the world know how the insights of these amazing CEOs helped you. Also, if you're hungry to discover more counterintuitive strategies to scale your business, don't forget to grab a copy of my book, The Little Book of Big Scale, where I've compiled the wisdom and insights from CEOs who have successfully scaled their companies against all odds. Or you can go to our website, www.evokinggenius.com backslash book. Thanks again for tuning in. Go forth and scale.